It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, your host. And uh, we've got a great one uh, in store today with a, uh, well, something old, something new. Uh, This is Wednesday, so you know what that means. Armchair Politics coming up at 10 o'clock, or the second hour of our three-hour tour. Jan Worth Nelson from the... uh, She's uh, editor of the East Village magazine, uh, which has become a, uh, a, a really credible source of uh, news over the last few years under her leadership. She joins our political roundtable uh, with, of course, uh, our roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. And uh, they'll be joined by Jan for two hours of commentary and analysis about uh, news uh, and and current events from local, state, and national sources. Uh, I'm sure Kamala Harris's name will probably come up during the conversation today, as uh, well as a number of uh, other things, plus our quotes and uh, my favorite part, the final segment... uh, at 11.45 when we go to the uh, coveted X-Files. Anyway, two hours of commentary and analysis coming up uh, at the top of the next hour. But for this hour, we're going to spend it, uh, I said something old and something new, armchair politics being new, and uh, we're going to revisit an interview I did a couple of years ago that was absolutely fascinating with author Joan Brady, who uh, not only wrote about, but got to know about Alger Hiss, and uh, that goes back to the, uh, oh, back to days of the Cold War and uh, uh, Un-American Activities Committee uh, hearings and the Army McCarthy hearings, the Red Scare, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, her book is called Alger Hiss Framed, Um, and uh, she talks about how uh, Richard Nixon's involvement in that particular uh, case um, launched him as a national figure. 
and anyway it's uh a very interesting book and we'll be uh, talking about that um we're going to be talking uh, about the wrapping up of the uh, supreme court session um they're off for their usual summer break returning on the first monday of october uh, but we'll talk uh, about what they accomplished and uh, what they didn't get to um, what they've held over for the next session and uh, um, all of those kinds of uh, supreme court matters with our supreme court guru um, who who is now doing uh, interviews on an international scale which is kind of fun to see brendan beery from uh, cooley law in tampa will be joining me tomorrow during the nine o'clock hour right off the bat we'll have uh, all the uh, supreme court recap and don't forget two-tone corduroy is going to be my musical guest this friday and uh, we've been promised uh, some new music to uh, include and so that should be uh, that should be something to uh, look forward to. I, I mentioned Kamala Harris, and I'm I'm really wrestling with uh, with this. Of course, I saw her in the presidential debates when she went after Joe Biden on a couple of occasions, and I know a little bit about her resume. But they keep referring to her as the first black woman, and and the first Asian, and I'm trying to sort all that out so i've got some uh, some learning to do about kamala harris now that she's been tapped by former vice president joe biden to be uh they hope the next vice president um, she is uh, joe biden's running mate and the democratic uh, national convention starts monday night um, but i'm not sure yet where to uh where and how to uh, to watch it. Um, I don't know if it'll be on television or if we have to go to cable channels or some online streaming service. Maybe we'll get to see more of it because of the pandemic than we would have if it had been held in a big stadium somewhere. Uh, we haven't for the last several years had gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage like I remember when I was younger. Um, but uh, but anyway, like I said, that's coming up Monday, and we'll see what happens with the Republicans and their convention, um, which has changed to an online format, coming up later this month. Anyway, uh, I'm going to break here for just a moment, and uh, when I come back, we'll, I'll be talking with uh, author Joan Brady. So... Uh, by all means, stay tuned, and uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, encore presentation of author Joan Brady talking about her book, Alger Hiss Framed, the story that made Nixon famous. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to me, I guess. My guest this hour is, uh, she lives in the UK, she's from here originally. She uh, started out as a ballerina and, and then switched for some reason to writing thriller novels. We're going to find out what that's all about and a lot more. <laughs> she, her new book is uh, Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Her name is Joan Brady. She joins me now by phone from the UK. Joan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. 
you, Tom. It's nice to talk to you. Hey, I, 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 wa I want to start out. I, obviously, I'm fascinated by uh, by this new book about uh, Alger. Oh, yes. Um, and, and I want to get into, because you met him in 1960 and then continued to communicate with him. And I want to talk about how much that... Uh, that meeting influenced your decision to write this book, but how do you go from being a ballerina to writing thriller novels? Well, actually, the trouble with ballet is that it's a bit like being in the army, and you realize you're basically somebody else's paintbrushes. Um, you're not really doing anything yourself. You're following orders. Um, I decided that I wanted to study philosophy. Now, if that doesn't seem like an absurdity in a ballet dancer, tell me what does. So I went to Columbia, and from there, then I married a, a writer, and um, you'd sort of fall into something like that. It seemed a sensible thing to do. Well, you've kind of, your whole life you've been sort of surrounded by writers, Joan. Yes, that's true. Your parents were writers. Uh, that's true. You have a son that's a writer. You married a writer. Right. You became a writer. Was that just to fit in? <laughs> no, not really. I, I'm, it was, I'm teasing. Actually, you. I started out with the idea that I wanted to give my husband an, the idea for a story. I had this idea for a short story. And I tried to explain it to him, and he said he couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it. I'd have to write it myself. He'd help. So that's how it started. Now, the... Um, the book, uh, Alger His Framed, um, is, is this a, uh, a historical novel or is it truly nonfiction? It is truly nonfiction. Every single word of it is true. I mean, it's also available online to anybody to check all of it. And, and in it, you... Um, uh, well, one of the things that, that I wanted to mention, because I came across this uh, while looking at, at, at your book and, and some of the information surrounding it, um, that this, this case, the Alger Hiss case, was the first televised congressional hearing? Actually, it's, today is its anniversary. Yeah, the first televised hearing. In, in 1948. many crowds, in the United States, anywhere, I think. Yeah, and, and that was 1948. And as you mentioned, the anniversary yeah. is today. Yeah. And, and um, of course, now, you know, I, I, I don't know how long it will be, but I can actually imagine in the very near future a congressional hearing channel. <laughs> I think you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but all kidding aside, in, in your book, you explain how Alger Hiss was framed. Was was he absolutely innocent of the charges that he went to prison for? I'm afraid he was absolutely innocent. They were all it was there were no the charges against him were not about spying or espionage or anything else. They were about they were perjury. They were perjury the same sort of way they got, you know, lawyers get people who they want for bigger crimes, but um, will, perjury will do. You can always imply all this other stuff, and that's what happened with him. You know, he was absolutely innocent. He was the sort of man you would really want in, in your government. I don't know. He believed in truth, and he believed in 
the law and he believed people were good at heart. He was, <laughs> all of these things were part of the trouble in that they wouldn't have got him without these beliefs on his part. Now, how did the meeting in 1960 with you and Alger Hiss come about? Well, the guy I finally married was the director of Consumers Union. And Alger, after he got out of prison, he spent three and a half years in prison. And after he got out of prison, he, he you know, they'd stripped him of his law degree, and he had no no way of making money. He stood in lines the way people do. And then he got a job selling women's barrettes. And then he got a job selling paper. And he would call people up and he would say, this is Algeria's <laughs> and I'd like to sell you some paper. And many people would buy from him because they could go to a cocktail party and say, guess who wants to sell me paper clips? Uh, paper, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, And one of the people he called was Dexter Masters, the, the guy who became my husband. And Dexter, unfortunately, Consumers Reports had too large a print run for this particular company to uh, handle. So he asked him to dinner instead, and I provided the dinner. Ah. I, ah. <laughs> the, the plot thickens, as thriller writers would say. Um, yeah. And during that dinner, was he very comfortable and open about his experience? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. He, was, he was extremely comfortable. His time in prison might as well have been a holiday in Florida. Really? You know, or, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Because, I mean, everybody smoked in those days, and this came about because, I mean, his talking about prison came about because he, uh, Dexter offered him a cigarette, and he said, no, thank you, and Dexter said, you don't smoke, and he said, no, 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 I gave up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember being stunned. I never thought he'd be open about any of it. And so I said, why? And he said that, you know, he was one of the few prisoners that had family who would send him things, and they would send him cigarettes. And so he would have to share them out, because he was just like that with everybody on, all the men on his block. And so men would get just one half a cigarette, and there'd be fights. And he thought it was just much easier to give up smoking altogether. I mean, he seemed amused at the fact that he couldn't find a better solution. But that was all. Huh. That, that is, that's, that's fascinating. How long was he in prison? Three and a half years, 44 months. And was that the length of his sentence or the normal? No, it was, he was let off a little early. He was, his sentence was five years. Uh, which was the maximum, and basically, I mean, he should have gone to a much simpler, you know, much softer prison. He should have gone to Danbury, but they, but uh, because the country was so upset over uh, his trial and the fact that they thought they'd caught a spy, Joan, the, I, Joan, I have to put sorry. a comma here. We have a break coming up. Um, can you stand okay. by for a few minutes? Because I want to, I want to continue with dinner with Alger Hiss. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back. My guest is author uh, uh, Joan Brady, who has written a book called Alger Hiss Framed. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in edgewise, and we'll be back to talk about dinner with Alger Hiss with Joan Brady right <laughs> after this.
Telawad there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part. Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. Lady of the house, please. <laughs> you thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. 
a must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in checker money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, an an author uh, from here originally, but uh, lives in the U.K. She has a new book called Alger Hiss Framed. Her name is Joan Brady. And uh, many awards for her uh, thriller novels, but this is a nonfiction effort. And uh, before the break, we were talking about Dinner with Alger Hiss. Joan Brady, welcome back to the show, and thanks uh, for spending this time with us today. Thank you. Um, Joan, in the course of of the dinner, just before the break, we were talking about how casual uh, Alger Hiss uh, was. He he ended up... uh, uh, because of a sales call, I guess, uh, on, on at the time, your future husband or, or your husband yep. at the time. And um, he ended up inviting him to dinner, and you prepared the dinner, and now you're sitting down to dinner with Alger Hiss, and he was pretty comfortable about who he was and having served time in prison. Um, what... Um, were some of the things that that he revealed um, in, during that first dinner? Did did the the case come up? How how does that well, it, come up? It did come up. It did come up to some degree. His his um, companion, whom he later married, a, a woman called Isabel. Um, when we were halfway through the dinner, she she sort of introduced it. I can't remember quite why or how, but she said. You know, it wasn't a fair trial. And he, she said, trials should be about justice. And he said, no, Isabel, trials are about law. And this one, they just didn't happen to get right. I mean, it, but it was, again, done calmly. There was nothing hysterical about it, nothing angry. I mean, nothing of the sort of feeling I'd have had um, or anybody else I could think of would have. It was just... The way things were. When when he first talked about it and, and uh, you know, made claims of innocence, how could you... He never, he, never, he never said anything about being innocent. It was just assumed that anybody who knew him knew it. I mean, really? Isabel would say so. You know, they condemned and they, they put away an innocent man. But he, would, he didn't use words like that. Is it be? Do you why why wouldn't he? Um, do you think it's because that's what they all say? Perhaps partly. I think one of the things, the reasons he got along very well in prison was that he more or less allied himself with the mafia prisoners, and they knew a setup when they saw one. Uh, and I think most people just either they accepted that. He was innocent or didn't care. I mean, Dexter didn't care, couldn't care one way or another, and I didn't care until many years later. It just didn't interest us for some reason. I mean, it seems odd, but it just 
didn't. Now, did you become friends socially? I, yeah. I, I read oh, yes. something we, about... I knew him for 30 years, and um, I mean, he was a friend for 30 years. He came to visit us in England, and we visited him in New York, and, you know, it was it was a friendship. At, at what point did it become a book in your mind? Oh, God, I got myself into trouble, into some legal trouble, and I was actually faced with prison, uh, or threatened with it, and I didn't know anybody else who'd ever been in such a situation before except him, and he was long dead by then. So I looked into the case, and I, I was really so shocked to find it so absolutely transparent. I mean, that's the thing that's stunning about it, is that it's just transparent, and it's all out there on the net. You, anybody can see that it's transparent. It's, that's what's so odd about it. It's a case of the emperor's new clothes. You just have to look. And the legal trouble that you got into was basically, if I, if I remember correctly, you had basically tried to fight City Hall over yeah. something. Uh, a, a, uh, well, I was being poisoned. I didn't like that. It was a water problem, wasn't it? No, it was it was volatile organic compounds, they're called. It was a shoe factory that was leaking its glues into oh. my house. Oh. And unfortunately, the council was involved. So, you know, they didn't like my objections. And uh, so they prosecuted me, and that was when I was threatened. And this... It doesn't sound like much, but it, and it actually, I suppose, and compared to Alger's situation, it isn't anything. It was a boring little local case with, you know, a council that didn't want to be uh, held to its own standards and was afraid that I might, you know, reveal something. What, well, and and when you say that it, it really didn't amount to anything, it, it got to be a pretty Scared big deal. <laughs> No, it was a very big deal in in your yeah, life and me. in the way that it played out and and ended up because didn't didn't you end up suing and and winning a lawsuit? I did. I did. I I won. I'm, that's another great difference between Alger's case and mine. I, I won. Um, it took eight years, though. Can you believe it? I mean, eight years to win this thing. And and and, and, I was, and that's a thing that you describe as a fairly small thing compared to Alger. Oh, yes, it's very thing. small compared now, to what happened with him. I mean, it's very small. And it was local, whereas his was actually nationwide. I mean, he, the newspaper headlines were, there were screamers across the, across the country for months and months and months. It was the trial of the century. And Alger Hiss, um, when you started looking into a situation, did you get a sense that that he really tried to defend himself at all? Oh, yes, he did try to defend himself, but he was a corporate lawyer, basically. You know, he was interested in legal contracts and government contracts. I mean, he had a very... He, he was, in effect, the first organizing... He was the first Secretary General of the United Nations. He organized it. This was a man of some yeah. importance. Um, and then he was the... Um, Director, director, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. These were important things to be, but it was a contract lawyer's um, job. 
and he had never even seen a jury. He had no idea that a jury, a jury trial, or even a congressional trial, when they were trying to get him for a crime, was different. You know, he didn't realize that basically it's theater. It's not, you know, gentlemen in a room discussing something rationally. It's theater, and he didn't get it. And and I and I wonder if that made um, made him take his defense a little less seriously. Oh, no. No, I think he took it very seriously, but he just didn't... I mean, he hired corporate lawyers to defend him. I mean, a corporate lawyer... In, if Actually, the first the hearings, the one we're celebrating, so to speak, today, you couldn't have a lawyer. or You could have a lawyer with you, but the lawyer couldn't um, say anything. They, there were no rules of cross-examination. The committee could say anything it wanted, ask any question it wanted, interrupt any statement it wanted, and all of that would go in the record. You had nothing. These were rich witch trials. They really were. And, and, and let's let's see if we can describe that a little bit for, for listeners. The, um, the case against Alger Hiss and, and the role that Richard Nixon played in it. Well, Nixon was at the time a very junior congressman. He had just won his seat in California, and he'd done it with red baiting. He was he had he was sort of the discoverer of the idea of red baiting. And when he got into Congress, um, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is the one that had Alger in front of it, or that Alger demanded to go in front of. Uh, was really on the way out. They were trying to get rid of it. it. spent some money, and it didn't bring in anything except trouble, and it hurt people, and people were getting bored with it. Um, but Nixon saw an opportunity, and that is really what Alger became for him, was a scapegoat for all of this upset he'd been creating. I mean, he was, he was the one who inspired McCarthy. That was what McCarthy came from. The, from Nixon, not before. I mean, he was afterwards. I think a lot of people don't quite realize that. Yeah, the Un-American um, Activities Committee was uh, not really such a big deal until it went on television, which started with Alger Hiss. Well, it had, it had a bit of a... You, you can't quite dismiss it so quickly as that, because it had put away 10 um, Hollywood writers... It hadn't actually, they hadn't, the committee itself hadn't put them away. They had been declared in contempt of Congress, because Congress had been persuaded by Nixon to bring out these contempt charges. And all they had done was to refuse to answer questions about their friends. Were these friends, you know, tell us about your friends who are communists. What about this one? What about that one? Are they communists? And they said they, they would not reply. They call themselves the Committee of the First Amendment because the Fifth implies you've done something wrong. The First, they felt it was freedom of speech. You, could, you had the freedom to stay silent. And when they came up with Alger, his feeling was that a matter of principle was involved here and that somebody had to stand up to it, and he demanded that he be able to answer the charges against him. And what were the charges exactly? Well, what people did was just to name other people. I mean, that was the whole point of the committee. You named names. And one of their uh, informants was a guy called Whitaker Chambers, who uh, got 
into the committee, was he was summoned to the committee, and he gave out names of a number of people, one of them being Alger. And so Alger came back from his holiday to find that he would, had been named in the New York Times as a communist and the leader of a communist cell within the government. And his friends said, just let it lie. You know, leave it alone. If you just leave it alone, it'll go away, which most people did. I mean, other people didn't volunteer, or demand, but no, not Alger. He was going to show them, and he was going to stand up for his principle. And he, was, he demanded that they allow him to answer these charges under oath. And that's how the whole thing started. And, which and, seems and how did it turn into to real actionable charges on which he could be sent to prison? Well, it took the four, it took the four hearings. Um, I mean, this, the one that be, that's the anniversary is today began with the chairman saying, as a result of this hearing, one of these two men will be tried for perjury. It didn't happen. Um, nobody got tried for perjury as a result of the hearing that was televised. But Alger dared Whitaker Chambers to state these charges in public. See, one of the troubles with these hearings is they were privileged. You couldn't sue somebody for saying anything in these hearings. It, the newspapers reported it because it was leaked. But you couldn't sue anybody for it because of the privilege. So what Foot Chambers did was to state it um, on a, a radio program. He did say there was no spying involved and things like that, but he, he did say that Alger was a communist. So Alger sued him. And, I mean, this is... I, what kind of a spy could do anything like that? I mean, that's so absurd. But that was how it got involved with a legal situation because of the suit that Alger brought. I mean, he brought so much down of this on himself, the first being um, insisting that he be able to deny this, the second being the suit. And during the course of the, the suit in, in uh, the discovery phase, um, Chambers brought forth some papers that he said that Alger had given him for transmission to the Soviets. These were sent to the Justice Department, which said, as Alger had said when he saw them, that the Soviets couldn't possibly be interested in these, and there was nothing there that was the basis of anything. So that having failed... Um, Whitaker Chambers comes up with the idea of this pumpkin, which I think is so insane that, anyway, he said he had this pumpkin, and in this pumpkin were films that proved that Alger was a communist and a spy. Um, so midnight um, investigation of Whitaker Chambers' farm and this pumpkin that... I mean, it was the middle of winter and a killing frost, the pumpkin, but there was the pumpkin, nice and plump, and a, a, an arrow of squashes pointing to it. And the HUAC investigators went out with their lanterns and they took two reels of film and three canisters of film out of the pumpkin. And those became the, these Nixon declared were proof of the greatest treason history, treason Conspiracy, treason conspiracy in American history. Well, the two reels were dismissed in the first um, sitting of the grand jury as completely meaningless. And Nixon refused to give up three canisters. 
on the grounds that everybody in the Justice Department was obviously a commie. Uh, and, I mean, there were days of press conferences, but he kept these things himself. And nobody saw them until uh, 20 years later, 20-odd years later, in the, um, with the Freedom of Information Act. And they came out to be pages from maintenance manuals at the public sh- on the public shelves of the Bureau of Standards Library. Where did the films come from? Who made these films? Chambers. I mean, he got the idea out of a Soviet spy film that he'd seen. He, he said so on his website. Really? Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff, as I say, it's all out there in the public for anybody to see. You just have to put the pieces together, which is rather fun. Now, in, the, in this day and age, if, if someone were wrongly accused and spent time in prison and was later proved to be innocent, there would be some basis for lawsuit or, or compensation Right. Was any of that ever done in oh, yes. Alger Hiss's lifetime? Oh, yes. Alger, Alger tried again and again and again. It, one appeal after another. I mean, there was one appeal, I, I can't remember them all, but one of them came up in front of, you know, a Nixon appointee. And the, it's, it's the um, appeal of the appeal came up against the same appointee. And this went all the way through to the Supreme Court. I mean, it was an amazing thing. There was the oldest serving member of the Supreme Court, a guy called William O. Douglas, said that there was not any possibility that any court in any land could uphold this verdict. And yet the Supreme Court itself did. This, I mean, this is just so incredulous. It's, it's I agree. almost impossible to believe. Um, and, and yet we've seen it in a number of different yeah. Cases. Um, there are family members who live near where we do our show from, of uh, Sam Mudd, that are still trying to get their ancestors' name cleared. Uh, yeah. G- Gary Powers suffered uh, tremendously yeah. in his lifetime. The U two pilot, if you're familiar yeah, with that you. story, but um, but but this one. They're they're just. How was Alger his picked? Was was there something oh, he about himself, him? You see. Was there something I mean, about he, him that made him an ideal patsy? Or did oh he, yes, he was a member of the State Department, and there was this first hearing during which Nixon sort of Nixon figured out he could beat the guy, and they, he wanted a big profile somebody. He he wasn't. Uh, I've had various people suggest various other ones that were um, proposed as scapegoats, but Alger was just you mean even back, a Boy Scout. Even, even back then, Joan, uh, Richard Nixon had a list? Oh, well, it wasn't <laughs> Nixon's, but, uh, yeah, but you're quite right. Yes, he did, and he was so clever. He, re- he was a brilliant man. He, he really was, I agree. And this, this was just... And he was really, he worked very hard on this. And he, as he said, I had to leak stuff all over the place. And, you know, I had the guy convicted before he ever got to the grand jury. He, it was an astonishing thing that he did. And he was a gambler, just like Trump, as well as, a, as, a, as an actor. And he knew how to play an audience. And Alger hadn't a clue uh, about audiences and theater and 
So, uh, so Alger Hiss was picked virtually by his title. Yeah, I mean, it was a better thing to, you know, to get high-profile people, to, you know, to tickle high-profile people and see if any of them would fall. And they did, I mean, it wasn't that Alger was alone by any matter of means. There were many, many, many State Department members were listed. And you see, these lists would come out, and that's all there was. There wasn't, there wasn't a charge except, you know, what the witness had said. There wasn't a proper charge brought. It just, here was this witness who said he's a communist. And that was it. And it, with many people, it ruined many, many lives. These n- names would come out, and these people would lose their jobs, and there were suicides. And I mean, it was a dreadful, dreadful business. Alger, yes, um, had no history of being a communist or, or, as they used to say back in the day, a communist sympathizer? Absolutely none. And the, the um, FBI had thousands tens of thousands of pages of them. They've destroyed a large part of them. But the ones that remain, something like 40 or 50,000 pages, make it perfectly clear. I mean, Senator Moynihan looked through them. He could find only, I think, that they had got some information about the bomb and that Priscilla Hiss had been a member of the Women's Coalition of Shoppers or something. That was all they could find. That was it. Did, and go ahead. Did did Nixon ever acknowledge in any of his writings or public or private comments that as to whether he actually believed Alger Hiss was a communist or that he made it up or or any of that? I don't think he ever. Well, we have that eighteen minutes that's missing, and it's entirely possible that's what's there. I mean. Uh, <laughs> John Dean said that uh, he'd said, you know, you have to, the the typewriter is always the key. We built one in the Hiss case. That's gone. Um, Nobody, except for John Dean's comment. I think it really was, to Nixon, a terribly important thing. It did put him on the national stage. It did put him en route to uh, the Oval Office. This was what made him president. And guilt or innocence made no difference. Oh, goodness, to Nixon? Goodness, no. I mean, he said there was one, when he ran in California to get his seat, he ran against a guy called Jerry Voorhees. And he had this campaign, a telephone campaign, and people would call up saying they were the Liberty Bell or something like that. Did you know that Jerry Voorhees is a communist? I mean, this was a telephone campaign. And in his tapes, he does say, I never thought Jerry Voorhees was a a communist. He was one of the most decent human beings I ever met. But I had to win. That's the thing you don't understand. I had to win. This, uh, Joan, we're coming up on another break in about a moment, and and I was wondering, can we can we get you to stick around a little bit longer? Yeah, sure. I I really appreciate it. I this is a fascinating story, and I suspect that it has implications that that are as important today as as they are to the history of of this event um and and i want to try and get into some of that with you if i can but we do need to take a short break here my guest is joan brady she's written a book called alger hiss framed a new look at the case that made nixon famous for those of you listening to us on 92.1 fm 
we're going to uh, break away, let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in edgewise. And for those of you streaming at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have a few words for you as well. And then we'll be back with more words from Joe. <laughs> Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. 
To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of a new book called Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Her name is Joan Brady. She joins me now from the U.K. Joan, welcome back, and thanks for being so gracious and, and doing the whole <laughs> hour with us. No problem us. at all. Um, Joan, in the, uh, before the break, we were, we were talking about... Uh, Nixon's uh, impact on on framing Alger Hiss and and what his uh, motivations were and and so on. But during the uh, during the last segment, you made reference to the fact that a lot of the information about Alger Hiss's innocence was all over the internet, was very readily available. Yet you say a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. What's the new? Part. What's what's new in, in this treatment? What were you able to find? Well, I think part of the thing is that nobody's looked at this evidence. You have to look at evidence to make some sense of it, and nobody has looked at it. It's there easily, readily available for anybody, but you have to be interested. And the interest in the case has long ago died down. Um, and it was a sort of resurgence uh, when a few books came out about... Um, you know, about Alger and the Soviets, the idea being that he had somehow or other, uh, he was proven to be a spy by Soviet archival material. This is a complete piece of nonsense. Um, I mean, it's quite extraordinary that you would assume that if he had been this great spy, there'd be something in the FBI files, but we've already established that there was none of that. And the first person, when there was, when Glasnost happened in the late 1980s, uh, uh, in, and in 1991, Richard Nixon himself wrote to a guy called General Volkovanov to ask if he had any material on Alger Hiss. What year Nobody was else. that, John? Sorry? What year was that? 1991. And the general wrote back, having asked his, you know, he had uh, several people to um, research this material. He wasn't the sort of guy who went into the archives himself. He was an important man. He was the defense advisor to uh, the, the to, to Yeltsin at the time. Um, so he wasn't going to be going into, uh, into archives, even for a one-time president. So he had, he had a guy called Primakov, who had a staff, in the archives, and Primakov spent his time and looked into this thing. They found nothing. But the thing that's interesting about this is that there is no record of what happened in terms of... I mean, there's great record in terms of the request. Mm -hmm. That's known quite well. 
but there's no, no, no indication of what the general wrote back. The following year, Alger's lawyer wrote the same general, and through a sort of an odd set of confusions, the request ended up with a guy called um, Kobyakov, another general and another archival expert who had his, his um, team look into this and found absolutely nothing. He said he says he will eat his hat if anybody proves to the contrary. But because the case had been General Volkoganov's, he turned it over. And the general, General Volkoganov, wrote to Alger and said, there is nothing for you to worry about. There is nothing here. And so this had been, there had been two researches into this right there. And it kept going on. I mean, when other people asked, it was was viewed in the, and it wasn't viewed at all in Russia. I mean, nobody had ever heard of Alger Hiss in Russia, despite the fact he's supposed to have been a prize asset for a decade. <laughs> it's just absurd. And the guy that they all rely on is a guy called Alexander Vasiliev, who was brought in because Crown Publishers made an arrangement with the KGB who were having trouble with their pension fund, as who isn't, and they needed some money. So they said they would allow um, a journalist some access to some private, you know, some secret information if, you know, if they turn over some cash. So the arrangement was made, and Vasiliev, who had been a KGB uh, operative and was a journalist, was hired to look at these documents that were presented to him in the press office in Moscow. He didn't go into the archives at all. It's very hard to get permission. And he was was interesting because there was a he got involved in a, a libel suit against um, the a, a man who had written that his research was ridiculous, all of it. And so he got into a libel suit with this man, who's John Lowenthal, who is Alger's lawyer. And because England is much, much easier on people who sue for libel, he sued here uh, in England. And the high court judge, his name was Edie, brought down, they they listened to the information. They listened to try it. It was a full jury trial. And he lost. This is a huge landmark thing for England, too, because, I mean, libel brought him in lots of money. But no, he lost, and he swore on the stand that nothing, he had found nothing to indicate that Alger was a spy or any relationship to spying, which is exactly what the generals had said and exactly what several other people have said, I mean, several other important Soviet um, or Russian um, authorities, including a, a couple of history professors who say it's an obvious case of fabrication. There is nothing. Joan, the, when you took the, the new look at the case that made Nixon famous, um, were there things that, that jumped out of this story that, that reminded you of things going on contemporarily? Well, certainly the fake news. <laughs> this is something Excellent. that Nixon actually, he must, I don't know whether he actually invented it, but goodness, did he use it. I mean, it was extraordinary what he did in terms of just making up stuff. 
and leaking it to the papers. And you can't really blame the journalists. It was he was a member of this committee. He, he was, was a duly elected member of Congress. He was an authority in the government, and he leaked this stuff. They took it. Of course they did. And also he told a very good story, and Alger was boring. Um, and there's, I think there's also the fact that you had you had the same situation. I know that it sounds, it, it, there was a, a, the class war thing, too, that you have now. It was definitely, I mean, Nixon was a poor boy from Whittier. And it showed. Yeah, he famously and, referred to himself as a cloth coat Republican. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Joan, I, this is such a fascinating conversation, I, and I wish we had more time. But I do want to take uh, just just the last couple of minutes that we have and ask, what's next for you? Will you be debunking the uh, charges against Benedict Arnold? <laughs> no, I died <laughs> having eight fathered eight children. I'd soon keep them hanged. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a joke that goes with that, but I'm leaving it alone. Um, Joan, where can people find out more about this story? Obviously, the book is a great place to start. Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Um, but what, what are we some... We have a website. Okay. It's algerhissframed.com. That's easy. Yeah, that's not hard to remember, and it, it gives you all, I mean, you've got all the facts are there on the thing. You can see for yourself where they, you know, where they came from, what is clear and what isn't clear. You know, it's very straightforward. Now, I, and, and I, I just, I can't help wondering if it ever occurred to you to call the book The Spy Who Came to Dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a good title. I have it. I've kind of thought of doing it as a novel but you know at first the trouble is it's so much of it is so fantastical like that pumpkin that you can't really it, it, people just wouldn't believe it i couldn't see an, it getting past a uh you know a <laughs> you can, fiction editor you can't make this stuff up <laughs> yeah that's the thing joan you're an absolute delight to talk to best of luck with the book what is next for well, you thank you i don't really know if you've got any suggestions, I'd like to hear them. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give it some thought, and if I come up Thank with you. something, I will pass it along. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was uh, Joan Brady. She is... Uh, uh, actually, she lives in the UK. She's from here originally. Uh, she is the uh, she's won many awards for her writing and for her novel, her thriller novels. But this is a nonfiction book that she's penned uh, called Alger Hiss Framed: A New Look at the Case That Made Nixon Famous. Now, normally on uh, on Fridays uh, during the eleven o'clock hour, we try to go to. Uh, uh, live local music and uh, we're going to do something a little different we're going to stay with the live local music theme and we're going to talk to some organizers of an event that uh, is going on over in Durand and uh, it's to benefit um, Durand area veterans and and I think you're going to find the story uh, very interesting <laughs> Sumner 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. 